I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. Portland and serial killers. They go together like Portland and rain or Portland and shootings. I promise it is still the best place. We just need a little bit of work. Some of the more famous serial killers that are connected to our beloved city are Ted Bundy, Keith Jesperson, and Gary Ridgway. But among so many, there is one killer whose shocking attack and dismemberment of a woman shook the city and changed the rules for the FBI. Luckily, he was caught and put away before he could hurt anyone else. But then... He was paroled, and exactly what you would think would happen, happened. Leaving body parts and devastation in his path, Richard Marquette is still behind bars, but it was quite a journey to get him there. A while back, I did an episode about a shocking double homicide called Lover's Lane. After Larry Payton and Beverly Allen were shot to death and the case went cold, there was a moment of hope and answers when there was a shocking call to police. Here is what I wrote in that episode regarding that discovery. Time goes on and the tips and clues quiet down. Then on June 9, 1961, a woman in southeast Portland called the police. She had let her dog out in the backyard and about a half an hour later when she tried to get it back inside, it refused as it was preoccupied with something. Perhaps the killer's depraved behavior could be connected to the killings of Beverly and Larry. But it turned out to be a one-off that brought them hope and just as quickly brought the detectives crashing back down. Joan Ray Cheever was born in Drain, Oregon, a city 40 miles south of Eugene, in September 1936. She and her husband Lawrence Cottle had two young children by the time she was just 23, Jeffrey and Sean. At only 18 years old, Joan, as it is written in every article, or Joanne, as it was written on the death certificate I found, the couple lost a child after only 35 hours of life after being born at 29 weeks. On Tuesday, June 3rd, Joan left her young boys with their father as she left to do some shopping for the upcoming Father's Day holiday. But that night, Joan hadn't returned home. Lawrence filed a police report, then waited. Three days later, on Friday the 5th, Lawrence received a call from the police department. They had recovered physical evidence and they felt it might pertain to his wife's disappearance. They had three questions for him. Did she wear nail polish on her toes? What size size shoe did she wear? And did she have webbed toes? Wanting to do what he could to help police, Lawrence answered to the best of his ability. He provided her shoe size, knew that she did paint her nails, but he couldn't help with the last one. He told them that, honestly, he had never really looked that closely at the feet of his wife, the mother to his three children. Huh. I don't know how I feel about that. I feel very uncomfortable with it. But let me ask you this. If you had webbed toes, would you go out of your way to hide them from your partner? Maybe he never got the opportunity. Personally, me, I wouldn't. But, um, and they were partially webbed. It wasn't like a full web. But you would think maybe even in a casual mention of like, oh, I can't wear... That flip-flop because of my, my toe toes are yeah. something. But then again, if you were very self-conscious of that. And we're talking about the 60s as well, mm-hmm. very early 60s. So Closed toes I can kind thing. of get that. It's just like I can't fathom not my a- partner not knowing like not only not knowing my body, but especially something specific or different like that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. No matter, the shoes at the Cottle home matched the size they were looking for. 
the police continued to question Lawrence. Where could Joan have gone besides shopping? When pressed if he thought she might have gone to a bar, Lawrence shared that she didn't drink much, but having learned that her mother had recently fallen very ill, she may have stopped for a drink. Going off that info, officers asked a local barfly who had been out on the night Joan went missing. When they showed her a photo of Joan, the witness had not only seen Joan that night, but she had actually been cock-blocked by her. Oh! The witness had been speaking with a young man with dark hair, small eyes, and big ears. Suddenly, when the beautiful young Joan came into the bar, all of the attention was drawn to her, and the witness was left in bitter silence. So what was the evidence police had found leading them to Lawrence's door? Well, it wasn't the police that had found anything. It was a dog. It was at 1535 East Pine Street that a dog was let outside. After a half hour, the owner was trying to get it to come back in, but it would not listen as it was preoccupied with something wrapped in brown butcher paper. When it finally came back running to its owner, they were shocked to see what the dog was playing with when a foot came falling out of the paper. After the grisly discovery, the woman called the police. At the house, they asked questions and looked around, and once again, the dog had found something in the yard. Oh, my gosh. This time, it returned with a hand. Can you imagine, like, sorry for a second, you're just, like, outside, you let your dog out. What you got there, buddy? Yeah, reaching down for it, like, leave that. What are you doing? Oh, my gosh. And then it does it again. Yeah. And it's human body parts. What a, what a party conversation it's an actual that would nightmare be. so if you live at 1535 <laughs> southeast pine we'd love to hear from you <laughs> about your backyard this caused the police to declare the yard a crime scene and for an official search to begin at the same time but at a different place in a cardboard box which was leaning on a garage door on alder street less than a mile from where the foot and hand were located police found two fingers a chunk of abdomen and a variety of organs Right away, some answers were obvious. All of the remains that had been recovered belonged to the same person, Joan. Medical examiners determined Joan had been strangled, raped, and then decapitated. But the strangest of discoveries was the condition of the body. It wasn't just that she had been dismembered and her remains were strewn across the city. Her parts were wrapped but not buried. There was clearly no effort to hide them. And they had all been completely drained of blood, Hmm. every ounce from every vein was gone. This had been a grueling process, and someone knew something. That someone was the witness from the bar who not only saw Joan talking with a man, but got the man's name, and it was Richard Marquette. Armed with the name, police found the home of the Oregon native high school dropout and former member of the Army, Richard Marquette. And when fingerprints from the recovered hand and those located in Joan's house were a match, it confirmed it was Joan who had been murdered. A week after the first remains were discovered, a warrant and bolo was issued for Richard Marquette for the murder of Joan Cottle. The 26-year-old lived in a small, shack-like house on Southeast 27th. Police arrived, but no one answered. Making their way through the home, searching for clues, police found bloody lingerie and a saw. In a duffel bag and in the freezer, among his store-bought meats, wrapped in the same paper as the other discoveries, was the rest of Joan's body. The only piece of the young mother they still hadn't recovered was her head. He uh, d- really didn't do his due diligence there. He, It's like he didn't give a crap. He didn't give a crap. He gave his name at the bar? Like, yeah. Hello? Almost like, well, yeah, just not 
a serial killer type thing that you normally hear. It's normally yeah. Like, usually they're you're out hunting and you have a mm-hmm. whole plan. Yeah, they're actively trying to blend in and hide. Mm-hmm. And here he's just letting letting it all hang out. Yeah. Only adding to his guilt after being seen by a witness and having a fridge packed with human remains was that Richard hadn't shown up for work the Friday after the body parts in the backyard were discovered. Not that he really had steady work. He was kind of a general handyman, but had currently been working as a mechanic. It was his previous job as a meatpacker, which was haunting and earned him the moniker, The Butcher. So who was this man who could so callously murder a young mother, drain her body of blood, and disregard her in such a way? Richard, or Dick, was from Portland, and this wasn't his first run-in with police. In 1956, when he was 22 years old, his 21-year-old victim dropped the charges, but he had been arrested for an attempted rape. Within the year, he would be arrested again for disorderly conduct. A year after that, after using a sack filled with wrenches to knock out the attendant of the gas station he was attempting to rob, he pleaded guilty and served 12 of his 18-month sentence, his good behavior earning him a six-month discount. Wrenches. A a sack of wrenches. Yeah. Do you go buy a bunch of wrenches? I can only imagine that he just, he, he, as you'll learn, he's kind of... um, an in-the-moment person. Oh, they were just there? And I have to imagine it was like an old-school gas station that maybe had garages attached, and maybe he kind of went through there and oh, grabbed threw them in their... a bag. That's a good point, because they have multiple stations yeah. where each person probably has multiple yeah, size Yeah, he's wrenches. very much like crime of opportunity kind of a guy, so I think it was just... That would be painful. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, it's fine. He served his 12 months. <laughs> He had good behavior. Gotta let him out early. He's a good guy in here. He'll learn. (laughs) Now, on June 19th, 1961, he was officially charged with murder and he was a wanted man. Additionally, he was on the lam, so he was named a federal fugitive, allowing for the FBI to become involved. Oregon's then-Governor Hatfield reached out to the FBI. Due to Richard's flight, combined with the brutality of the murder, Governor Hatfield, calling it the most heinous in Oregon history, begged the FBI to do more to help catch the killer. It didn't take much to convince them, so on June 29, 1961, the FBI's Most Wanted expanded to include an 11th entry for the first time ever. Wow. Richard had, in fact, fled Portland after he murdered Joan, making his way to California by way of hitchhiking. And thanks to the FBI's flexibility, Richard's wanted poster was hung in the office of an employment agency in Santa Maria, California, an agency that just so happened to have recently taken Richard on as a client. One day after he was listed, a call was made, narrowing the search to a central California city. Can you imagine giving a hitchhiker a ride? And then you see him on the wanted poster and you're like, oh, my God, what did I just survive? Like, that could have been me. Not to tease too much, but just wait till you hear who he hitchhiked with. Twenty three days after Joan's death was discovered, police arrested Richard. He was attempting to get a job at a thrift store when two men working there also recognized him from the flyer. Richard had a knife on him, but was arrested without incident, even telling authorities, I knew the FBI would get me sooner or later. What? Shockingly, one of the arresting officers recognized him, but not from the poster. He had given Richard a ride when he was hitchhiking. Oh, my goodness. A cop? I believe an FBI agent. Oh, my God. It might have been a cop. 
There, there are conflicting it's, things I've read, but a, an authority officer. And we've talked about it a million times. Every serial killer case, there's that moment uh-huh. where somebody could have got nabbed earlier. Uh-huh. That was it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So can you can you imagine like, uh, I feel like a real don't bonehead. tell anybody. <laughs> I, I would I wouldn't want to tell anybody. Yeah. I'd be like, this guy looks real familiar. Oh, but yeah. We shared we shared a bag of popcorn on the road. Should I tell someone that? Is that? important to this oh my goodness don't hitchhike you guys or pick hitchhikers up they could be serial killers governor hatfield having attended a governor's conference in honolulu was six hours delayed but upon return was greeted at the portland airport by police and extradition papers once signed the papers were taken to salem so the secretary of state could sign before they were then sent to california with urgency they were sent off so richard could be brought to oregon to face the charges When questioned, Richard had one very lame excuse for the unfathomable evil he had committed. He had been drunk. According to Richard, he actually knew Joan from having attended the same elementary school. (gasps) Having not seen each other for some 14 years, the pair struck up a conversation. Richard, claiming to have been nearly blackout drunk from the start, having spent the night drinking in his favorite tavern, said they then went bar hopping in the area. He drank all night until he, quote, couldn't drink no more. Eventually, they ended up back at his house. Lawrence, Joan's husband, who didn't know what her feet looked like, told police his wife would never have had an affair as she wouldn't have had time since she was raising two young children. Oh, boy. I have a lot of feelings about this husband, but that's neither here nor there. When I get real drunk, I turn into a serial killer monster. Yeah, sorry about it. I'm sorry, I don't think you have any coherency when you're that drunk. And also, isn't there the whole thing of like when you drink, it's your inhibitions are gone and it's, you know, truth serum. It's really what you want to say or do. I don't know about that. But But still, I mean, he went to the extreme, I guess. This guy. But then again, he didn't know she was out drinking because she was distraught. So it's unclear if Joan went to Richard's place for consensual sex or if she just got too tipsy and needed a place to go or simply wanted to spend time with a long lost friend. No matter why she went there, she, no one, deserved what came to her. Richard later changed the story to say he became enraged after they went to his place and they argued about sex, which does make me lean towards that... Maybe she wanted to hang out with him and he and wanted, he wanted sex. Yeah, mm-hmm. he like pressured it. She's saying no and he kills her. And I kind of lean that way because that makes it happens a, all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Continuing on, Richard claimed to, quote, have been out of my mind drunk and I woke up the next morning and saw it. I wish I never seen her. But as the FBI man said, it's water under the bridge. Mm. There were then two questions he wouldn't give an answer to. One, if he killed and dismembered Joan. To that, the response was, I better not answer. To the second question, was Joan alive when he woke up? He said, I won't say if she was alive. Meaning the pair could have had a consensual evening, and when he woke up, he strangled, raped, and dismembered and drained her. It's hard to imagine how drunk he really was. If he drank all night, went home, and either slept without sobering up or dismembered a body for hours without sobering up, He was so shaken the next day he couldn't even go to work. He was unable to focus, so he walked out the door after just a few hours. From there, still in a haze, he caught a bus and made his way as far south as Tijuana, Mexico, where he stayed for a week before returning to Central California. After his arrest and extradition, Richard didn't hesitate to take authorities to the location of Joan's head. 
a swampy area at the south end of the family-friendly amusement park, Oaks Park. Oh, no. With more questioning and a trial, a little more information about that night came out. Richard claimed to have been so drunk he threw up that he got upset with Joan but didn't remember striking her. When they left the bar, they were in a cab and they were necking, and that when he came to, he had Joan's body in the shower where he was dismembering it. In a panic, he started to, quote, dump it in some place, any place, dumping it in lots. This was all a desperate attempt to get rid of the body, and since he had only a small car, this was, to him, the only option. So he likely drained her blood in that shower. Mm -hmm. Did they collect evidence from the pipes, do you know? I don't know, and I don't know if they would have even... That's a lot of blood. ...what they could have done with that, but maybe in the evidence. Well, it just, yeah, show that he did it in his home. Yeah, that's true. I'm, I'm sure they... Also, for what do we have? Six pints of blood? That yeah. is a lot of blood. Yeah. And how did he do that? Did he hoist her up like you would meet? The way he kind of said, like, she was hanging in the shower. So I think maybe, yeah, he, he like, propped her up from his meat packing days. I think he just yeah, I mean, you'd went have into to that mode. need gravity to get all of that yeah. blood. Oh, that's so sad. And that takes, that's the other part with the drinking. All of this, take like we talked about on that Patreon with the son that did that to the family, Hours. it takes so much physical labor mm-hmm. that it's like, how does that not eventually sober you up? Or how does it like that doesn't hold because all if these he, things. If he really was drunk. Exactly. That's I what I mean. That. That's what I mean. Where it's just like, OK, but that doesn't make any sense. In December, after a two and a half week trial, the jury found Richard Marquette guilty of the first degree murder of Joan Cottle. He was then sentenced to life in prison, and off he went to the Oregon Penitentiary. His response? Oh, thank God. And that should have been the end of Richard's story, but sadly it wasn't. A mistake would be made, and two more lives would be lost. It's that time of year again, and as excited as we all are to finally be with our families, there's always a need for two things. Mistletoe and Santa's lap? I was thinking more gifts and games. Oh. Gifts for your friends and family, games to pass the time, and bond. Well, in that case, I have just the thing to cover both of those needs. A new game that we've loved playing, Psycho Killer. Oh, heck yes. Psycho Killer is so fun, as our Patreon listeners can attest to since they got to listen to us play it. While using themes from all of our favorite slasher flicks, Psycho Killer is a fast-paced card game for two to six players. It's easy to learn, easy to play, and super fun to build strategies. With cards that have weapons, predicaments, locations, and of course, Psycho Killers, use your skills, strategy, and cards to survive, which may also include stabbing your friends in the back. Not literally, of course. More importantly, the game comes in the cutest VHS-inspired packaging. It sure does. So do all of the cassette tape-inspired expansion packs, which include a drinking version, zombies, and extra weapons. Don't let your family make you feel psycho. Have a killer time while playing Psycho Killer from EscapeTabletopGames.com. For an extra bit of fun, I love using the QR code on the box, which takes you to their curated Spotify playlist. So visit EscapeTabletopGames.com to get your own copy of Psycho Killer and use the code RAIN15 at checkout for 15% off. For more gaming fun, you can follow them on Instagram and TikTok at PsychoKiller.CardGame. PsychoKiller! Psycho 
During the sentencing phase of the trial, the jury, be it that Richard was young or because the psychiatrist stated he was deeply disturbed, asked the judge to give leniency, which for some reason was heard and implemented. You'll notice his sentence of life imprisonment didn't include without the possibility of parole. In 1974, after about 12 years behind bars, Richard was seen by the parole board, and based on his behavior while incarcerated, which was stellar, he was released and paroled. Hmm, boy. Um, remind me how old he was when he committed um, he that murder. He was 26. Okay. So he's now about 38. Starting a new life, Richard, well, his parole officer, found a place to stay in the Highway Avenue trailer court in Salem. He also became an assistant plumber in the area. And those things are great. We talk all the time about how prison should be for reform, but in some cases, the safety of the public should be considered as well. And not everyone was so happy to have Richard around. A co-worker stated that when he spoke, he talked like a child. His landlord said she, quote, always sensed he was a disturbed person, at times worse than others. Sometimes he wouldn't even answer me like he was in another world. Other times he would talk up a storm. A few months after his release, he had his first run-in with police. In July of 74, he was pulled over in Salem for drunk driving. With a blood alcohol level content of .15, nearly twice the legal limit, Richard was charged. Once in court, he paid a $200 fine and was given 10 days jail suspended, which I'm not quite sure what that means. It means they gave him the 10 days, but since it's overcrowded, they just oh, he suspended didn't do it. it. Oh, but it's okay. on his record. I gotcha. Because I actually saw a different, this was all from newspapers, so it's like just news clippings. And I saw one that said that charges were dropped. And then this other one said the 10 days suspended. So that would yeah, make sense. So that's, that it's that's, basically having charges dropped almost. Well, it happened a lot in the 70s and 80s. We talked about that with the I-5 killer case oh, right. where they had overcrowding. So they would put it on their record, but they wouldn't make them serve in jail. That makes sense. Uh, and on top of that, he was also given 90 days probation, which I'm not really sure what that matters when you're on parole. So Yeah, you're already... You're already on parole and once for again, murder. Yeah, and here he is showing like... Um, I guess, a, a lack of concern for his community members. You know, he's endangering people at, yeah, at a huge very alcohol concerning. level. Sio, Oregon is just 25 miles southeast of Salem. A new resident of the town in January of 1975 was Betty Lucille Hardin Wilson. Betty Wilson was born in North Carolina, residing there into adulthood. But life had been hard for Betty. She was married at just 16 years old. Once married, she and her husband started their family, and what a family it was. With 11 children, Boy. finances were tight, and the family of 13 ended up living in an abandoned school bus. There were reports she was in an abusive relationship, which would answer as to why her children were all put into foster care. While that's not what any parent wants, Betty saw it as an opportunity for escape. So, knowing her sister Nancy Jane was going to be making a cross-country trip to Portland, she hid in her sister's trunk and escaped North Carolina and her abusive marriage. Wow. But the horrors she thought she was free from was nothing compared to the fate that awaited her just a few months later. On Friday, April 18, 1975, Betty was driven to the Pepper Tree Supper Club by her niece, where she met with some friends. The Supper Club had a capacity of 250 people and was known for live music and dancing. Leaving after dinner and dancing around 12.30 a.m., it was the last time Betty would be seen alive. 
Around 4 p.m. on Saturday the 19th, a fisherman came upon a ghastly scene. Three miles south of Salem, in the waters of Browns Island Slough, was a body, and it was in pieces. The water was shallow, the body barely concealed. Near the torso were the arms, legs, breasts, and head of 35-year-old Betty Wilson. Missing from the scene were her genitals, and they have never been recovered. Upon examination, it was determined the cause of death was strangulation. The first person police looked at was Paul, the abusive husband, but his alibi was rock solid as he was still living in North Carolina and had not left. With the husband cleared, police knew they had one other option as to who a suspect could be, local killer Richard Marquette. A judge issued a search warrant based on Richard's history and proximity to the supper club, which was nearby. After searching his house and car, it only took until 2.30 a.m. the following Tuesday to have Richard in custody. Like a deja vu from hell, Richard was questioned and nearly every answer echoed from 12 years prior. He met Betty, they agreed to go to his house, they had consensual sex, he strangled her, and then dismembered her before dumping her body in the slough. But it was clear that, just like in Joan's case, there was nothing consensual about the sexual interaction that had taken place. Also, there was some calling of BS as Richard's reasoning for how he disposed of Joan was that his car was too small. But now he was driving a pickup truck. Wait, wait, wait. My car is small, so I had to cut her up? That was his reasoning, was that I just have a little car. That is an impressive argument. I mean. Like, what? (laughs) That he was panicking about how to dump the body. So since my car is small, I have to just have parts. So now they're saying, you have a pickup truck and you still did it. So. Yeah. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Yeah. To the shock of investigators, Richard wasn't done talking. He confessed that Betty wasn't his second murder victim, but his third A year prior, he had met a woman at the Decent Dudley Tavern in Portland, and just like with the other two women, he chatted her up over drinks, propositioned her to come to his house, where he then strangled and dismembered her before dumping her body. Doing something decent for a change, he not only confessed to killing, but offered to take the officers to the remains. Leading officers 18 miles south of Estacada to the Roaring River Campground in East Clackamas County, they first found her torso in a shallow grave, then her arms and legs just shy of a mile from the campground. Hoping it would take longer to identify the victim, Richard removed her head, fingers, and toes, none of which have ever been recovered. When Richard never heard anything about a missing woman, he figured he had picked up someone no one would miss. Even though detectives searched as far as Chicago, this victim has never been identified and remains a Jane Doe. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. If you know anything about a young woman that went missing in the Portland area in 1974, please contact doenetwork.org. Detectives asked bartenders from the tavern, but since Richard couldn't provide an exact date for when he was there, they couldn't find anyone who had witnessed Richard speaking with a young woman. Given that Richard confessed to not only Betty's murder, but of Jane Doe's, he pled guilty when presented with the murder charge for Betty. This was after his parole was revoked after being arrested. His life sentence was reinstated for Joan's murder and a consecutive life sentence for Betty's. There was a parole hearing set for 2005, which instead became a moving date. 
Due to anger and fear, Richard was placed in a prison out of state. Then in 2005, when he was 70, he was moved from the undisclosed location to the Oregon State Penitentiary. As for charges for Jane Doe, well, there weren't any. Without identification of the victim and with back-to-back life sentences already in place, the DA was like, that's enough. That's frustrating, but I understand. It is, but also when the killer is saying, I didn't think anyone would miss her, and then you're saying, yeah, no one misses her, so you don't have to serve a penalty for killing her. It's like, "Mm, doesn't work that way. But justice being served isn't exclusive to a victim with a name. It's about showing the community that that person who could have been anything, a sex worker, a mother, a teacher, a sister, a daughter, a banker, she was a person. And deciding that the state of her body, once discarded by her killer, was enough of a reason to add another life sentence to his record, even as a gesture, would have been the least they could have done, especially since it was the mistake of the parole board that led to her death. The early paroling of Richard Marquette had a ripple effect through the state. Efforts to reinstate the death penalty failed but were attempted. Other inmates, who had been doing the right thing and serving their time, knew they were less likely to get paroled as the board was overcorrecting their failure. Mm-hmm. And I actually read several articles of people who were like, oh, my gosh, they I knew I was going to get paroled. I've done everything right. I'm a good guy in here. Uh, my good behavior is legitimate. I've turned my life around and I don't want this life anymore. And they're like, oh, I'm not going to get paroled now because there yeah. were actually two guys in the same window of time that were paroled and made mistakes. And this is one of them. And it really rippled through the judicial system. I could see that. That's terrible. Richard Marquette is 87 years old, still living in the Oregon State Penitentiary. He's a surprisingly old age for someone who has been incarcerated for so long, but perhaps he's just giving the families of his victims as much of those two life sentences as possible. Women's lives need to be protected. Good behavior, unidentified, those are not reasons enough to disregard the safety of others. How much time would Richard have been sentenced to if he had only killed the Jane Doe? Would it have been taken less seriously if she had been the only victim? I reached out to Richard. Unfortunately, we've not received a response back, but please stay tuned as we will let you guys know if he does send us a letter. There's a lot going on in this case, and it's shocking that he's still alive. And it's also interesting you don't hear him kind of in the same conversations as those guys there are it's actually there's quite a few that aren't Mm -hmm. um even gary ridgeway isn't talked about as much as you would think someone like him would be yeah yeah he's there's a lot of serial killers in in oregon and you only ever hear about maybe four or five of them even the i5 killer a lot of people had no idea who he was yeah and and i mean he was going at it for years so uh yeah this is hard because there's a very clear blame you can place on letting someone that twisted out like it is obvious he has problems yeah he has mental health problems yeah that that is very clear and that was a very violent grisly death i can't imagine a world where he's not going to be a danger to society well and it's shocking too because while I was reading the details of stuff and, and writing everything out, it felt very um, Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, like almost the experimental or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. Each episode or e- each killing was kind of it's like he's kind of hunting, but also kind of just opportunistic. There Definitely a pattern of like go to the bar, meet the girl. 
was that something that he hadn't expected to do and it just happened that night with Joan and then he's like, I'm into that. I'm going to keep doing that and going to bars and meeting people. I Well, I was thinking about this when you were talking. He, What would he have been like if he hadn't have had that job as a butcher? Yeah. Because he wouldn't, I think, know how to drain a body right. unless you've That's worked a good point. alongside me. So would he be a different type of serial killer? Mm-hmm. I do think that opportunistic would have come up. Yeah. But he did have a pattern. Like, But then he's so quick. Like the second he's picked up by the cops, he's like, I'll take you to where her head is. And as soon as he's caught for the other murder, he's like, oh, here, I actually killed somebody else. It's that else. internal struggle. Like, I'm sure he doesn't want to be like that. Yeah. I'm sure it's this internal struggle. Like, who wants to be like that? There are, I think there are a few serial killers who they want to be like that. And mm-hmm. they haven't expressed any regret. But a lot of them really have those demons that they tried to fight. Yeah. That's why I really hope to hear back from him of just like... One of my questions was like, do you think the parole board made a mistake? Because when he got arrested, it was, oh, thank God. Yeah. I'm saying like, I like, want this I'm monster take me controlled. Out of, take me out of society because I will do this again. Yeah. So, you know, there's that human. There is that humanity part of him, I yeah. think. But when you have a need and you fulfill that need and it's so gory and grisly. Mm-hmm. And I that's the thing. It's like. Like I said, we talk about reform all the time and people serving their time and, and getting another chance at life. But when you have someone that a psychiatrist is saying is super unwell, OK, put them in a mental health facility. And outside of that, the crime, it's one thing to be I made a mistake and got drunk and drove my car and I killed someone on accident. That's one thing. And then we go, OK, let's talk parole. If like if you're feeling like you can manage yourself, but to be like, you did what? Oh, 12 oh, yeah, years I, ago, I'm sure you're fine. I am a big believer that some people can be reformed and others yeah, cannot. Absolutely. There, there is a component of violence that I think cannot ever be controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like you said, there are crimes where people can go to prison and get reformed. And I know a couple of people, they got mm-hmm. out of prison and they're fine. They haven't gotten a speeding ticket. Right. Um, but then there are those that I just don't think that's in the cards for them. Yeah. It is you going cut... to be a life imprisonment. And it's like, no wonder there's this continued battle of like, believe women. I really am excited about the conversation being used now of like, you know, violence against women, but like bringing, saying per- perpetrated by men, making it about like, who's doing it rather than who's yeah who's the victim it. it's always you know oh this this woman that was the victim but saying no this man killed her or this man attacked her it's like no wonder there's such a battle because here you have someone can you imagine if that was you you went out and you've got your kids at home and you just need to go get a drink and you got dismembered and thrown around in people's yards and in a box and in a freezer and 12 years later they're like you're fine that's so invalidating and so dismissive of well, who that and, person was. And you you know the saying, the squeaky wheel gets the yeah. oil. I mean, there are women out there whose families continue to advocate for them after death. That victim, Jane Doe, never had a she, chance. Yeah. No one. They don't even know she's a victim. No one knows. Yeah. yeah. So that stuff is easily swept under the rug when no one knows about it and isn't advocating for yeah. them. Because obviously if if it happened to one of our family members, we're never going to stop talking about it. Right. You're going to go on every podcast you can to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen that with many families that we've talked to. So we have to start advocating for the people that don't have those families. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. To go to those, like your episode with the parole board, to have that family there and right. push and say and do. And it's like, what if the victim wasn't, this husband doesn't know where his wife is, what she's doing. She just stays at home with the kids. You know, like he had diminished her in his own way. And so then when it comes, it's like, oh, well, she just stayed at home with the kids. And, you know, was he at the parole hearing or had he just, you know, who knows what his life was like at that point. But, yeah, there there was no one fighting to be like, yeah, this guy is a monster. And there's a lot of components to this that are just disappointing and sad and just infuriating. Like (laughs) how (laughs) it is totally their fault that this guy went out and killed two more women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are times where I can look at stuff and go, okay, humans make mistakes or maybe they had different evidence or what. It's like, no, this is on you guys, like flat out. That's it. Then we go back to that case about the the one that we had the parole hearing aired. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he won't do it ever again. Right. We don't know. So right. it's like, do you, it really is every individual is different, but we need to listen to the psychiatrist, obviously. Yeah. That's that's going to be your number one person mm-hmm. on a parole hearing yeah. to listen to. To be able to say like, yeah, this can turn around or this will never change. Because they should know if somebody can be reformed. Yeah. And that is one of the main components of the parole hearing is can this person or even before you get to the parole hearing, it's like, are they even eligible? Mm-hmm. And also, I think totally different topic. I think it's shocking. He's still alive at 87 years old. He's been in and out of prison for like something like 50 years now he must be taking advantage of the gym stuff there uh, it's keeping heart healthy yeah it's really kind of surprising that he's still yeah so he was, is probably the oldest oregon serial killer gotta be close to prison. so yeah i was that's why i was like oh well that's i mean interesting that he's close by and still alive at this age normally you find a case from the 60s and you don't have a lot of people do you that, know if he's appealed any of his Sentences? I don't believe so. I don't think there was. So that's another like, factor that makes you think he knows he's in the right place now. I think he always know, knew that. I really, th- the way he was like, oh, I knew you guys would get me. He like kind of ran, but didn't. He was just kind of starting his next that's life. That's even more sad, though. It's it like, really is. Could you have spoken up way. sooner and, and said, no, I'm not ready to leave prison? Yeah. Yeah. When you get arrested and say, thank God. That's kind of a big yeah. sign. That's it's very sad for everyone involved, mm-hmm. and sad for him too. Like if you know you you're doing this horrible thing and you don't want to be doing it, yeah. Like that's at that time. Who do you go to with that information? Yeah. Where do you get? I think help? I have a mental health problem. We can barely do that nowadays. I know. On Tuesday, June 3rd, Joan left her lung bo- lung boys. She left her lung boys. You know, lung boys. He pleaded guilty and served 12 of his 18-month sentence. I bit my tongue. Oh, no. And I was on such a roll. When questioned. <clears throat> when questioned. When, <laughs> when questioned. What, what did I do? <laughs> I didn't re-ingest my burp. It sounded like it, though. It was like you swallowed it up. <laughs> Mind your business of what I swallow. <laughs> I swallow what I want. I like briefcase sperm. Ah! <laughs> Gross. Detective ass. Nope. Detective ass. <laughs> I'm Detective ass, and I'm here to inspect your ass. 
<laughs> oh, really? Because I'm a female body inspector. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 